Hi, and welcome to Filmography Club. I'm Jason Cavanis. Today is the day. Today we bring season one to a close as we discuss Paul Thomas Anderson's eighth and most recent film, that's Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread was another of those PTA films that I needed to watch a second time in order to enjoy it more. I certainly got more out of it on the second viewing. Uh, Lots to talk about today, too. We've got a heavyweight cast, a gorgeous color palette, a beautiful, sweeping, era-specific score courtesy of Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood, lots to sink our teeth into, and a great guest with whom to talk about all of that with, Dicey Wildman. Some of you may remember Dicey from Episode 3, where she and I talked about Magnolia. She's also on the commentary track that we did for Die Hard. She's a good friend of the show, which is lucky for me since she's pretty knowledgeable about filmmaking, being a filmmaker herself with Daisy Dukes Films, with whom she makes horror shorts for women. She also keeps busy with the Defy Film Festival, a festival that she co-founded and features all manner of weirdo films. And all that aside, she's a lot smarter than I am, so if nothing else, I learn something new every time we have a conversation. So without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Dicey Wildman about Paul Thomas Anderson's eighth film, 2017's romantic drama, Phantom Thread. Hi, Jason. Hey, thank you for coming. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. You were a fantastic guest. It's great to have you back. We are talking about Phantom Thread today. This movie, I rewatched it a couple of nights ago, so that makes, uh, I think, two, maybe three times I've seen it. I understand it on a narrative level. I feel like there's some symbolism or some themes that are just getting right by me, though. So I definitely want to get into that. But uh, let's set the table before we start getting lost in the weeds. Set the table with a homemade dinner with butter and mushrooms, maybe? (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, we're going to get to those mushrooms. So, this is a 2017 film. It's. Um, I saw one article describing it as a love story, which I thought was interesting. That's true. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a very, mm-hmm. even uh, at the end, when we get to that completely <laughs> fucked up situation that these people put themselves in, it's mutual. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. consensual. So, sure. who are we to judge? <laughs> I have some feelings. <laughs> yeah, I've got some feelings, too. All right, so... 2017 film it's the eighth film by uh one paul thomas anderson maybe supposedly daniel day lewis's final film yeah do you believe that i know you've been thinking about daniel day lewis a lot lately what do you think i don't i i genuinely don't know with Mm -hmm. that guy he's he's sort of an anomaly he's an outlier he's unlike any person any anytime i watch an interview with him and they're rare he seems like an alien i I don't (laughs) I don't know what to make of him. He's, he's a very strange guy, he seems to me. Regardless of how I feel about the character, Reynolds Woodcock. Reynolds Woodcock. Which, there I have some things to say about that. Um, it really is a masterful performance. And if that is somebody's last performance, you know, go out with a bang. Sure, yeah, yeah. Or with a whimper on the toilet. So, Vicky Crepes is, I'm going to go ahead and call her the co-lead in this movie. Mm-hmm. In fact, the movie is sort of uh, the narr- the framing device for the uh, the narrative is her fireside talking to the doctor who we will get to and we're not we don't even know who she's talking to for most of the movie so most of the movie i suppose is sort of a flashback in a way i guess but then it catches Mm -hmm. up to the night of her having that conversation with him the setting here is 1950s i'm not sure what year it is i feel like it's early 50s but i don't know I'm comfortable with that. Um, somewhere in England. I don't know what town it's in. I don't Lovely. know if any of this is ever... A lot of the stuff is left vague. Mm-hmm. Alma, our co-lead, is vaguely defined as European. Mm-hmm. 
She has a lovely little accent. She does, and I can't really put my finger on where it's from. Mm -mm. Now, there's a lot of stuff that I've been I've been reading for this. I've been cramming for it. I watched all the DVD extras. There's not a lot in the way of video essays for this movie on YouTube. That surprises me, actually. Yeah, me too. But it's a relatively new film. Two years ago, three now, I guess. I mean, there's a couple, but nothing that really that was well done. There was nothing like you know a lessons from the screenplay on it. But she's defined uh, in in a lot of um, interviews. I've been watching interviews, reading interviews, reading articles about it. So I've got a lot of information about these characters in my head, but I don't know if it was actually communicated in the film proper. Mm -hmm. She's German, if I'm not mistaken. And I think PTA mentioned that just offhandedly in an interview somewhere, in some print interview. So that put her in World War II in Germany. Mm -hmm. So that had something to do with informing who she is and why she seems to be a little more, I don't want to say weary, She's scrappy, though, for sure. She is. She is. But she also seems like she may have been around the block, not in the sexual way, but she's just seen some shit. She's seen some stuff that this delicate man in his late 50s, I'm assuming, has not seen. He is a delicate man. Oh, so cared for. But it's uh, it's a love story at heart. It's a completely bizarre and twisted and fucked up love story, but it's it's. It's love. It's, You're reacting to my faces. <laughs> it's, it, it, yeah, they care about each other, but it's codependent. It's fucked up. It's weird. And we'll get into all that. So anyway, that's the setting. Uh, we're in a fashion house, the House of Woodcock in 1950s London. He's not necessarily the top tier fashion designer. He, he designs dresses. And so elegant. Everything is white gloves and such attention to detail, um, really high end, if it's not the most chic, as they say. Oh, fucking chic. (laughs) Setting the scene. So it's 1950s. I think it's early 50s. Somewhere in England. Uh, A higher end fashion house. Uh, I don't think it's like the top tier, but this guy does design dresses for royalty regularly and movie stars too and uh, that plays into the film too and then we start getting into some really dark psychosexual territory towards the end of this film and again i watched this movie i got it narratively Uh, i appreciated it narratively and just the the look of the film was just absolutely gorgeous the film stock they used wonderful wonderful stuff but i feel like there's themes at work in this movie that may have gone over my head and that's why i invite smarter people than me like you to come in here and spoon feed me well honestly i don't know if i can i mean it is it's a really complicated layered story and rewatching it last night i was really thinking about the metaphor of secrets sewn into the lining of clothing i felt like that was part of pta's own narrative devices there where things meant things to him that i don't know if that really comes across to the wearer of the garments so i i can only spoon feed you my weird theories on it but to your point i mean it really is so beautiful and so delicate and not dissimilar to these beautiful handmade dresses that clearly there's labor put in there and it is it is gorgeous also the sound design is really wonderful and it the music tells so much of the story. There's so many places where, like, skipping ahead a little bit, but not too much, when it's the first night that they're spending time together, and they're up in the little, like, attic workroom, and they're having a nice time, and then Cyril shows up, and everything gets very awkward. There's no music anymore, but you just hear the creaking floorboard so loudly, and Alma's face is dropped, and it is... The audio tells 
as much how you're supposed to feel as any as more than more maybe even than the narrative does. This might be Johnny Greenwood's. Of course, this is his fourth time, I believe, with PTA. <laughs> so this is his latest collaboration. His latest collaboration with Johnny Greenwood, and this is might be his boldest or his most accessible. But it, the movie looks like something from 1940s Hollywood. It feels like something from 1940s Hollywood, and it sounds like it. Those sweeping strings, big, bold, orchestrated stuff, not doing that weird, fucked-up, percussive stuff that he had been doing, or the atonal dissonance from There Will Be Blood, like the horror music. Yeah, but there is some really like careful atonal choices here that, that are so well-chosen beautifully soundtrack really i went through the soundtrack for uh well you know while i was editing the thing just looking for music to drop in and out yeah just absolutely gorgeous stuff very impressed with johnny greenwood so we've got reynolds woodcock we've got alma i forget her last name does she even have one i don't know if it's even given but she is just supremely charming but then the third person in our triumvirate would be Cyril, who is the older sister of reynolds woodcock and she basically runs the household Mm-hmm. And and the 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 business as well. And the business, yeah. yeah, without a doubt. The business, which is basically like what seems dozens of white coated women, little elves who build these dresses that he constructs, and he's constantly surrounded by women who work for him in every possible way. It's him with a bunch of women. You're right. It's I actually notice. I only started looking for it at about the halfway mark, so I I didn't go back, but. I realized I had, I can't really remember if he ever speaks to a man in the entire movie. And so starting at about the halfway mark, he speaks to the doctor twice. Both times he just tells him to fuck off. And that's literally it. (laughs) That's it? That's the only only men that he speaks to in the movie? From the middle point on. You tell me if you remember anyone from the beginning. That's fantastic. I'll say this. I didn't remember the language. I noticed when Mm. when the movie started, it just said R for language. Mm -hmm. Usually there's a whole paragraph in there why it's rated R, drug use, themes, and blah, blah. Nope. Just language. And it's fuck. Not over and over. It's not not like Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. They're like smart bombs. They're not. He doesn't carpet bomb the movie with it, but they're they're tactical. They're, They're very, they're placed in exactly the right place. The biggest laugh in the movie for me was, uh, didn't I tell you to fuck off? It's so great. Well, also, you know, when he, at one point towards the middle of the movie, Reynolds is yelling at Cyril that he's so unhappy. And in this, like, beautiful marble white, everything's perfect. Everything in the space is exactly where it belongs. And everything about Reynolds is exactly where it belongs. He's very manicured and careful. And so whenever he drops an F-bomb, you really feel it. It feels incongruous with the space. And and like you said, it's really chosen always to make you realize, like, like... Things are not as they should be. So Cyril, she's in her 60s, never been married. She got cursed because she helped him. She touched the dress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she she touched that wedding dress. That was a good laugh, too. Like, (laughs) did she get married? No. Uh, But she sort of fills in for Reynolds has never been married either. In fact, he's at the beginning of the film against the very idea. He doesn't agree with the institution at all. But he's kind of married to his sister in a weird way. She fills certain needs that a wife would ordinarily fill. they, They make a great team, like you said, about the shorthand. They definitely have a shorthand, a way of doing things. They do not like that stuff to get upended, especially breakfast time. <laughs> so fussy. <laughs> you know, as I was watching it with my wife, though, I remember just thinking like, yeah, yeah, my wife does that shit to me. Too. Okay, I like will... if I'm eating too loud <laughs> and I'm not a loud eater, folks, but it, just little things like that when you're married and just shit like that gets on your nerves. It's I very it. true. She was buttering her toast pretty loudly. Well, that's I part it. of, I mean, the, the audio really does a great job of putting you in that headspace, but I, I like. 
literally just last night to Eric was like, wow, you're eating so loud. Yeah. <laughs> and then that scene happened and I felt pretty bad about it. Yeah. My <laughs> wife looked at me during that scene and I was like, you know, this is kind of us, just just gender swapped. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she's, the, she's buttering the toast so loudly and on their honeymoon, you know, she's crunching so loudly and it really is. As much as he is the villain, if there were one to this sure. movie, you know, you are given insight into into where he's coming from sure. there. And so, yeah, I mean, she's she's being loud. And that and that first woman certainly is a confrontation early in the morning. And who wants that? But also, you know, he's he is just so fussy and so delicate and he can't have anything disrupt breakfast or or literally any other part of yeah, his it, life. It ruins him for the entire day. Oh. He, it throws his whole day off. If only we could all be so cared for. <laughs> yeah, he's an asshole. True. This is the second time Daniel Day-Lewis has played the lead in a uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film. And both times he's playing sort of an, is he an anti-hero? Is he a villain? He's kind of, he's a mm-hmm. villainous, certainly. But man, I just can't stop watching him. He, oh. he's, he's an asshole who I dislike on a personal level. And yet I, I just can't take my eyes off of him. Absolutely not. No, he's so compelling to watch. And in this I mean, whenever I love when there's a little crack in the in the veneer on him in this character and when he comes down for their like for the surprise dinner that she makes him and he's wearing pajamas and a vest and a blazer and an ascot and has a martini. I was like, I wish I looked like this every day. I mean, he's just you can't take your eyes off of him. He's he's totally incredible. Did you watch any of the extras on the Blu-ray? There's deleted scenes that Paul Thomas Anderson, by the way, did some commentary for the screen test. Oh, wow. So I watched a lot of the screen test before they went to filming. They they shot a bunch of footage of the two leads separately because they didn't meet until they meet in the film. No. Yeah. That's, they didn't that's do how any the chemistry actors, tests? They did absolutely none of that. They didn't rehearse that scene where he's the hungry boy scene where yeah. he orders tons of stuff. That was the first time the two of them had, had ever interacted. Oof. So they did the just the screen test. They tried out different film stocks. They tried out different wallpapers on the wall to see how it looked. Interesting. Um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. And, and PTA himself actually did the commentary. And that's the first time that he's done any kind of commentary at all since Boogie Nights. That's so, cool. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, it was very short and you're just watching people just sit in a room and talk. And yeah. they, they actually tried to put they put Reynolds in a in a tie, like a regular tie, not a bow tie. And it, mm-hmm. it was like the tea scene where he, he and his sister, he and Cyril are sitting down having breakfast and it just doesn't look right. <laughs> Reynolds doesn't look right in a regular tie. The man needs a bow tie. Oh, it really pulls it off. But like you were saying, you know, this really, this is goes back to the themes that PTA returns to often, which are these really hard to like men that are in control, in charge, and you can't take your eyes off of them. You cannot deny there is a dynamic charisma there, but they're not they're not men I would want in my life ever, but they're really, you know, it's it's there's something there that that PTA is really uh, intrigued sure. by yeah i watch it and i think if i were in her shoes i would get the hell away from this mm-hmm. guy immediately but there's part of me that says you know what though this guy's kind of famous <laughs> he's very successful there's a certain bit of temptation there i mean it, we're we're human and we want that story we want mm-hmm. to be able to rub elbows with people like that and maybe i wouldn't i don't want to just point my finger at her too quickly Oh, yeah, you definitely can't know. What's interesting, though, is we really we are Alma in the in the story. Like you said, the framework is her talking about her relationship with him. She starts off 
in, from the beginning talking about how he made her dreams come true and she gave him everything he wanted, which was every piece of her. And so like, you know, we she is our access point, but we really don't know anything about her. We don't, you know, like you said, we don't know her last name. We don't know where she's from, really. She's just from somewhere. Vaguely She's European. foreign enough that the one woman at the party is very rude about how she might be stealing things because I don't know how they do things in her country. Yep. But, you know, we don't know her. She says he made her dreams come true. But what are these dreams? What what does she want? It appears that what she wants is to be with him or I don't know. You know, I mean, a lot of arguments can be made there. For him to be, she wants him flat on his back. Yes. Is how she put it. She likes him vulnerable and open. And that's the only time he's really, it seems like that's the only time he's really somewhat affectionate. Mm-hmm. Kiss me, my dear, before I'm sick. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> so let's just get straight to the end of this movie. We're going to go ahead and spoil it for you. We get to the end of the film and Alma has just had it. Well, really in the middle of the film. Sure, you're right. Yeah, It so... is in the middle of the film. She's had it and she poisons him. She finds some, <laughs> some mushrooms and puts it in some food for him and it makes him ill and she loves caring for him yeah. when he's ill. And he loves it too. You know, what's happening prior to that scene is he's growing a little weary of her as we've seen that he does this, you know, he he's in every in in his life partner is his sister Cyril. They're they're two sides of the same coin, but we see that he has had relationships and that he grows weary of them and then disregards them like trash. And so we know we see that start to happen with Alma. And she feels it and she's smart enough to know that to that's what's coming. Yeah. yeah. I need to do a Hail Mary here. And she does for sure. And right and, you know, she so she finds the mushrooms, she knows where there's the book about where to get the or how to use the poison mushrooms and she does that. But then also in that scene they're finishing the dress, the wedding dress for the woman that he has had this longer relationship with. Now, we have no reason to assume that it's a romantic relationship, but he's known her since she was a child. He clearly clearly cares for her and almost clearly threatened by that because he's pulling away from her. And so before he succumbs to the mushrooms, she goes and asserts herself to the bride and says, you know, many wishes or well wishes or whatever. But she makes sure she knows that Alma lives there. That's right. her house. Yeah, she just throws that in. It's the weirdest mm-hmm. thing. Well, you notice she got, got she sort of got snubbed. By, mm-hmm. That was the princess when she came in. Yes, And yes, yes. all the seamstresses are, and, and models are lined up and she's shaking all of their hands. And she was really looking forward to maybe even Reynolds introducing mm-hmm. her, like, specially. Like, hey, this is, this is my lady. And none of that, in fact the princess turns away and shakes someone else's hand on the other side of the yes. hallway. And, yes. And she noted that and she made it made it a point, like you said, hey, I live here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then she just walks off. It's- yeah. Well, she she returns to the dress where she's helping all the little elves. Mm-hmm. So she, she crosses the room, says, this is my house, and then returns with her back sh- straighter than it was before. Yeah. She's done what she needs to do. And she also knows that brewing in the belly of Reynolds is poison and that you know, all hell is about to break loose. She's about to be needed. And boy, is she, I mean, he, I think symbolically topples into the wedding dress and ruins the wedding dress, ruins this, this symbol of what maybe a traditional relationship would be. I don't know. I've got theories, but the dress gets ruined and he is flat out on his back and, and I mean, a child and she's right there. And she, it feels like she has practiced in her mind exactly how she's going to negotiate that with all of these other women that are there that work for him, and then particularly Cyril, who, of course, runs to his aid, wants to be there for him, knows what he needs. I mean, of course, they've been together their whole lives, and almost right there to stake her claim. No, this is my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was it was great, especially since Cyril did that number to her where she was almost trying to get into into his room, and he just tells her to 
to go away. And then Cyril just walks in with tea and looks her dead in the eye and closes the door in front of her. She paid her back. Yes. And then after that scene, it is during that sequence where he's ill that the doctor comes and the doctor calls Alma, Alma Woodcock or Mrs. Woodcock. And Cyril doesn't say anything. They're not married yet. She doesn't say anything. No one corrects him. She's now like proven herself. It is after that scene that he proposes to her. And as the doctor's leaving, Cyril and Alma speak in unison to him. I was about to bring that mm-hmm. up. They did it about three times, I think. Mm-hmm. Every time he spoke, he didn't really look at either one of them, I don't think, like I'm addressing you. They both just responded exactly the same words yep. in unison. Yeah, yeah. They were competing right there. They're competing, but also it's it's a changing of the guard. Because yeah. Cyril doesn't push back on that the way that, you know, we've seen her try to assert herself with, with Alma. And she doesn't there. There is a like, okay. All right, I see that there's a new woman in town. And then later, you know, she talks about how much she likes this one. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. I remember my wife actually kind of laughed when she mentioned, I've grown, I'm, I'm so fond of her. Yeah. It's like, what? You treat her like shit. <laughs> yeah, but also, I mean, everyone's treating everyone like shit. Yeah. So. These people are snobs. Yeah. They're snobs, they're assholes, and they're snobs in the way you would expect British fashionistas in the 1950s to be. Yes, they are very. Fond of themselves and full of themselves, and almost really an outsider in that. But she she stakes her claim in a very unique way. I sort of watched this movie with a really different eye last night and started to view Woodcock as this representation of the patriarchy and Cyril as the like old guard white women who work hard to uphold the patriarchy because it has served them as well as they can. And then almost sort of this opportunity for something new. And I think, you know, the scene when she gets invited to the party by the young doctor and he's, he's great and charming and thinks she's wonderful. And he invites her to a party that time of your life. And literally that party is phenomenal. It looks like the best party anyone's ever been to. Yeah, it looks like a Gatsby party. Oh, it's so great. And it really feels like, you know, this is the, this is the future. This is the changing times. Reynolds is old and stodgy and fussy and he's not chic and Henrietta Harding or whatever her name is. She doesn't want to come anymore. And she's getting dresses from somewhere else and he's out of fashion. And Alma, you know, she fits in great at this party. She's having the time of her life. With strangers. yeah, With strangers. And she, you know, she runs from him to this party and, and, you know, because he doesn't want to come with her. And, you know, it feels like this opportunity for for something new, for changing changing times and yet they both return back to the way things are and their relationship of this power dynamic where it's hard to say who has all the power there. I think they find a balance at the end and the end is completely fucked up again. We didn't get to the end. No, I I interrupted you to the middle. It's it's fine. It's fine. So uh, about in the middle, she poisons him a bit and she gets to mother the guy. And he loves it. Yeah. Then, he, oh, go ahead. Please. No, sorry. Please. We didn't talk about the fact that he hallucinates his own mother during that scene. That was the creepiest. She never says anything. Yes. And she's wearing those like late 1800s wedding. Oh, my God. It was so creepy. Looking. I love that. And I had totally forgotten it until rewatching it last night. 
Um, but I thought it was significant that as a vision, she says nothing. And it, when he speaks to her, I mean, he, he clearly has mommy issues and talks about that and how much he misses her. But he says he dreams of her saying his name. It's still all about how these things reflect on him. He sure. is he how is totally self-absorbed. Even in his dedication to this woman, it's about how it relates to him. Exactly. Because this is a woman who mothers me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what he needs. She seems to be the one woman in his life or it's established right off the bat in their first date that that's pretty much the only woman that he loves, I suppose. Uh, Cyril. I'm Cyril, sure, yeah. I'm sure he loves Cyril, too. But uh, he just treats these women like just garbage. Yeah. Once he's done with them, he just gets bored and waits for them to get the, the hint. Yeah. Okay, so I interrupted so anyway. you to, to remind us of the hallucination. So... Towards the end of the film, she poisons him again, except this time we find out that he's aware of it and digs it. Yeah. He looks her right in the eye and eats poison, knowing full well what it is, and kiss me, my dear, before I get sick. Yeah, I didn't, I don't, you don't see the moment that it becomes clear to him. You don't. There's one moment. He's suspicious. When she's cooking. Yeah, but he does look up a couple of times, but there's no... It doesn't help. feel like a knowing no. look up. He, he seems suspicious. Mm-hmm. And then... Once, uh, he, once he digs into the food and looks at it and he puts it on his fork and he's still looking at Alma like, are you going to stop me? Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. he realizes like, I'm about to eat it. Are you going to stop me? And she just doesn't. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Okay, yeah. here we go. And they get locked into this weird thing where every so often to wind down, she will poison him and he will willingly be poisoned just so that she can nurse him back to health. Yeah. Have you heard why Paul Thomas Anderson, where he got the idea from no, this? No, tell me. This, uh, from, I saw him in front of an audience on YouTube talk about it on a panel and he kind of played it for yucks that way and then he gave a slightly different answer in print so the one that he played for yucks in front of a stage with the, with the panel with the actors he said that his wife Maya Rudolph he got sick and she was mothering him and kind of nursing him and he just thought man I love the way she looks at me right now how could I make her do this more often <laughs> and then the idea started started rolling uh, in print, however, he, it was a little darker than that. And as as Maya Rudolph was mothering him back to health, he remembered looking at her and seeing the way that she looked at him like she just really adored and cared for the guy. And he was thinking, you know, she's getting a lot out of this. Is she poisoning me? And I'm sure that was <laughs> a joke. Yeah, it's just this weird thing. I mean, when I'm sick, I'm kind of a baby. Sure. And, you know, when my wife takes care of me, it's it's nice. It's nice. Oh yeah, who doesn't want to be taken care of? When she when she tucks him into bed, that when the first time she poisons him, I couldn't help but feel like a, a longing for that. You know, someone just like making sure all the covers are tight on sure. you, and oh, I'm gonna get to what you need. You know, that's that's of course that's appealing. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess that's why he has the mommy issues, at least plot wise. Why he has the mommy yeah. issues because that's a thing that usually mommy does. Mm-hmm. And that takes you back to childhood. And then just for him to be chasing that his whole life in this weird, really messed up way and got it. It's just oh, it's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like it's a reset button. It's a, you know, what does she say to him the second time at the end? She says, I think you need to calm down a little or something like that, where it's, you know, OK, you're you're c- going away from me. You're looking at other places. You're distracted from me. Nope. I'm going to make I'm I'm the thing that's going to save your life right now and right. you better not forget it. Never mind that I'm putting you in danger yeah. by doing it. Yeah, and even at the end when he poisons himself and he's sick, 
he says something about like maybe we should call the doctor. Yeah. And she's like not into that idea at all. No, like, guys, you don't trust me. Yeah. Like, how do you know what ratio to? Because you... <laughs> she the first time it is it is sprinkles of mushroom, just sprinkles. I mean, she puts it in a little more of a pestle, and it is like a thimbleful. And he took a big bite of those mushrooms at the end. Yeah. He took a big bite. Yeah. Call the doctor. I'm not sure he makes it through that scene. <laughs> but at least they, he, if he doesn't make it, they're very in love at the end. He does because remember the movie flashes forward a bit and they have a kid. Yes. And uh, Well, that's, she also kind of says she she looks to the future sometimes. Right. So right. There, there's, you could see so that So maybe that way. didn't happen. It almost doesn't matter to me. It was sort of like Cyril had been bested at the mm. end when mm-hmm. they're all in that park and the, t- the couple decide to walk off and they leave Cyril there yeah. with the kid to, like, you know, rock the little carriage that the kid's in. She seems fine with it, though. She does. Okay, we need to talk about Cyril more. Leslie Manville, right? Just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, speaking of actors you can't take your eyes off of, there are these two, just this couple that they're so gorgeous and they're so incredible. And she is right there with them holding her own every time she is on screen i just want her to talk more she's so perfect and she really in that in this character of she runs everything she's the one who knows best he's in charge but he's also the fussy little baby and really like everyone does what she says when they fight somewhere in there he's frustrated and she's frustrated and she says don't you know don't or don't, don't complain at me, it hurts my ears. And don't come at me, I'll come right through you or something. I mean, it is like... Yeah, you won't come out of it alive. Yes. I will go right through you and you will be on the floor. Do you understand me? Something uh, like that. Yes. And she never even once... I think they just throw like a little side eye towards each she other and she just carries on drinking her tea. Yes. It's wonderful. It's the best scene I've ever seen. It's so good. And it is, I, it feels, I rem- the first time I saw the movie in the theaters, I walked out saying like, I wish the movie was about her because really she is the most interesting character to me. She is doing She's taken the opportunity that's available to her. She ends up having to be the mother for her little brother. She never gets married. He gets all this acclaim and and yet like and and you know has right is talented and rightfully brought um, riches into their lives. But she walks that line between you know loving and grateful and doing something that she appreciates to like really full of some ire and power there that you mm-hmm. feel bubbling right under the surface and I want to know everything about her. She relishes being in charge. Mm. Um, like, they all do, I guess. When she had to rally the troops, all the seamstresses, like, hey, you're going to be here all night. If you're going to be using the phone, use the one in my office and you're, you're, you're just not going anywhere. You're going to stay right here and mm-hmm. we're going to finish this dress. Mm-hmm. She loved the one being the one that had to take charge once uh, the creative guy is out of the business. You know, he she was all business. You know, and she's not in very many scenes. It's a, it's a handful, but those are the most interesting to me. That dynamic of that brother-sister relationship and then her relationship to the world, which we only see filtered through the House of Woodcock, but... Um, yeah, she, I would watch. A, I would watch the spinoff of her. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. You should check out the the Blu-ray extras. There's a House of Woodcock fashion show. Oh, there's a whole fashion show, and it's even narrated in a, in a '50s type style. Welcome to the House of Woodcock. It's it's great. That's cool. Yeah, it's fantastic. He goes all out when he comes to making the extras. Sometimes you know. I love that. Yeah, me too. Like when, when Magnolia, when he did all the music videos, and then he shot them on set while they were shooting the film. You know that sort of stuff. Yeah. I love it.
As far as reoccurring techniques go, he's are there any long takes in here? There's none that really point at themselves. No, at yeah. There it, might be some subtle stuff going on. It's but. much more subtle. There are some longer tracking shots, like the, the, the fashion party. show, the party, um, you know, when she's kind of flitting around and either they're there. There's one when he walks into the restaurant and meets Cyril in the corner. They, they're there, but they're not You're so right. showy. Yeah, they're not very show-offy at all. Yeah. The, the, the movie is so beautiful in its own right, though. It feels like he doesn't, he's maybe more comfortable in that. I don't know. What a beautiful movie. Just I don't I don't I don't know the first thing about the technical aspects mm-hmm. about different film stocks or lighting or any of that stuff, but to watch the the Blu-ray extras mm-hmm. really went through that and like, okay, here's the different film tests we used with the different actors just to get a feel for them and how we should dress them and how we want the clothes to look and what's his signature style and all that and it's 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 neat to just watch that and see all the different looks that they were going for or that yeah. they were just trying out. Um, the one they landed on was wonderful. I love the shot. The camera is attached to the back of Reynolds's car. Yes. And it's that blue. looks like it's at dusk or dawn. Uh. It's that blue cast over it, and it's sort of time-lapsed, I think, or sped Or he's going too fast. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful, though. There it's is absolutely a really... Beautiful. I mean, there's a lot of the the narrative in this movie is weak. There's not a ton of narrative. Right. What happens and what it's about are very different. And it's really, you know, it's not a super interesting story. But there is so much that he uses in visual language on top of how detail oriented he is with every single piece of clothing and wallpaper, like you're saying, and film stock. Um, but he's just, he really is such a master in and of himself. The, I was really taken by this scene after she's, when she um, tells him that she's surprising him with dinner. It's not, a, it's not a poison dinner. It's a good dinner. And she's really trying to say, I, I'm, where am I in this relationship? And he comes home. She's left everyone else out of the, or she's told all the servants and everyone Cyril to leave the house. And she's at the top of the stairs. He's at the bottom of the stairs. She's so excited about this gesture. He is not into it. And then as he kind of warms up to it, although that doesn't really go so well, and she's sort of getting more comfortable with the idea, they meet in the middle of the stairs. And then he says, okay, well, I'm going to go take a bath and climbs the stairs and leaves her at the bottom. And, you know, there, there's so many little moments like that where you cannot deny that PTA is thinking about every single detail and really using everything in his arsenal to tell stories that almost don't have stories to them. They have these moments. Yeah, that moment. In fact, when you read his scripts, and I don't know, I haven't read a ton of screenplays, but when I read his at important moments, it'll say in all caps, that moment. In fact, that's the name of a short documentary, I believe, about the making of Magnolia. It's called That Moment. It's a thing that he keeps coming back to. It's like, okay, if you're reading this, if you're an actor, like this is a big moment in the movie. Just that's know that. so fascinating. Yeah, I did right. not so know that. I wasn't sure if that was just something he had done because I've read a handful. I've read like Coen Brothers and Tarantino scripts, and they don't do that. But then I'm not well versed. I haven't read a ton of screenplays, so I wasn't sure if that was something that he did himself. If that was just special I, to him, I also have not read a ton of screenplays, but I've never read one that said that. So yeah. that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, he he definitely points it out. I love yeah, that. yeah, you're right. It is about little moments like that. It's it's a power dynamic. It, there's a shift in the power that people are jockeying for position just in that relationship between those two people. And while it's not a car blowing up and it's mm-hmm. not orcs coming over the wall at Helm's Deep, it's still <laughs> exciting. It's still a yeah. big moment in the film. And that's maybe a, re- a reoccurring theme for him. I mean, m- many movies 
deal with a shifting power dynamic, but I would say he often goes to the little moments where power shifts in a relationship that from the outside, you could even miss it if you didn't know better. But if you're in it, or you're one of those two people, it's monumental. You know, I think that that happens in There Will Be Blood and The Master and and all of them where there's just a shift that you could miss it, you could blink, but it's everything. The scene, the the loud buttery toast scene, the breakfast scene, (laughs) that moment, she pushes back. Alma pushes back. Mm -hmm. She almost said doesn't know when to stop, but really she was sort of right. She's just sitting there existing, having breakfast. She shouldn't have to be berated by this guy. But yeah, she pushes back. And I don't think that his other girlfriends did. It seemed like a really big deal when that one at the beginning was lamenting. Yes. He's like, oh God, this again. And he he says, I can't take a confrontation in the morning. And is there any... I simply haven't time for a confrontation this morning. (laughs) I mean, I feel like there's no bigger confrontation than I'm going to cook poison food and make you eat it. I mean, that is that's really in every way Alma holding her own. She's holding her own in a way that I would say is inappropriate. And I think they have a relationship that made me worry about Maya Rudolph just a little bit. That's yeah. But (laughs) it's, um, you know, it it does appear to work for them. And there is uh, as much as I as much as I struggle to care about him as a character, he's so mean to her in so many scenes. And the thing with the party is just like so hard to watch. And he drags her out of there by her arm like she's a child. But that last scene when he is sick to his stomach, and they're embracing and the smile on his face, it's like the smile at the beginning when they're at the restaurant and she calls him a hungry boy it's hard to not feel something for them in this relationship at that time yeah it's so weird i i want to be completely i am part of me is completely repelled by this dynamic that they've fallen into this psychosexual nonsense that they've latched onto but it is genuine their affection is pure they they, they genuinely do care this seems to be a thing that's making them happy yeah <laughs> that's it's, pta's impartial eye at work again mm. you know he's not really telling us how we're supposed to feel about these characters at all he's just showing them being themselves and and it's kind of up to us to figure out how we feel about that yeah that's really true you know there there is he has an affectionate eye for everyone in this and also yeah it's repulsive sometimes and certainly complicated but yeah i mean i guess real relationships are as well and i'm certainly not going to fault someone for finding something that works for them i also do want to say that people need to protect themselves and don't let people a treat you like your child or b poison you everyone's to blame here tit for tat you know different people different strokes different folks (laughs) that's absolutely true don't kink shame Sure. I mean, but, you know, protect your body. <laughs> My God, what an asshole. What a, what a bunch of assholes these people are. Cyril is just totally content to take out the garbage every now and again and just, shall I break up with her for you? Mm-hmm. How nice must it be to just have someone ready to dump your significant other for you? I'll give her the October dress. She'll yeah. be fine. You get the impression from that scene and some of those early scenes that there's not a single thing that he needs to do for himself. He clearly does do some things for himself. We see him in his kind of washing up ritual in the morning. But like, I bet if he said, will someone else comb my hair? Any one of those people who lives in his house would do that. You know, it's he is very cared for.
This was a really collaborative effort on PTA. He said that really Daniel Day-Lewis probably should have gotten a co-writing credit. Oh, that's cool. Not not for plot stuff. The structure is all PTA, but a lot of the dialogue, he said when he wrote his dialogue, he just wrote it to be kind of utilitarian, mm-hmm. and he knew that Daniel will spruce it up. He'll, Interesting. He'll say it the way Reynolds would say it, but he just wrote what needs to be said. Which is like a roadmap. Yeah, just yes, Did he no, do that or, in any of the other scripts? That's so interesting. No, not not to my knowledge. But he I, said in this one, Daniel Day-Lewis probably should have gotten a co-writing credit. Cool. He wrote. He pretty much did all of his own dialogue, and uh, he was there from the beginning. He just had an idea, and he went to him and said, what do you think of that? He even named his own character. That Reynolds Woodcock, that's not a PTA name. That's Daniel Day-Lewis that's that great. came up with that right It's there. a that's, little on the nose. It is. But also, you know, why pretend like that's not what we're talking about? We're sure. talking about a fragile male ego <laughs> that needs to be reminded that he can be strong too sometimes. Although we never see that in any way that's, that is strength that any of us would be proud to possess. But he's got something. Yeah, what a what a talent, man. I hate to see him retire. This is supposed to be his last film. How do you feel about that? Well, I feel like if you're going to make a last performance, this one is beautiful and dynamic and special and strange and, you know, it's not a horrible one to go out on, but also I'm always a little Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I don't believe it. Have you seen the Jimmy Kimmel interview with Paul Thomas Anderson? No. It's, it's on YouTube. Kimmel surprises me. He'll have comic book writers on. He'll have directors on. He'll have guests on that normally the other late night guys won't won't deal with. And he's had PTA on a couple of times, if I'm not mistaken. He loves his movies. And That's so he, interesting. He asked him, like, what's it like? working with a guy like Daniel Day-Lewis, this noted method guy, and, like, that's got to be weird. And he said, uh, oh, no, he's actually a pretty normal guy, and you'd be amazed at the shit TV that he constantly watches. He Uh. loves, like, bullshit reality TV. (laughs) Like, Dating Naked, I think, was the one that he really was into. Wow. Yeah. I like knowing. I honestly, I hope that's not true. And that's just like the best prank that PTA pulled on Dan Lewis. Yeah, just to be like, like, now this is part of your story. Yeah. You're not going to do press for my movie? Then I'm just going to tell people that you watch all kinds of trash TV. I love that. <laughs> but that's great, though. It humanizes that guy a little bit. Because really, we put that dude on a pedestal. And he, oh, we very much do. As we do with many eccentric male artists. And yeah, I am. Um, I mean, I would be nervous to sit across the table from him because what do you if he was a normal person I would be surprised even though of course he is I don't know what's going to come out of that guy's mouth I would be thinking the whole time he's going to be very snooty and acerbic with me like Reynolds Mm. or he's just going to come thundering at me like Daniel Plainview (laughs) and there's going to be spit flying out of his mouth while he pounds the desk (laughs) and frankly either one I'd be down for yeah Yeah. Yeah. I I would go to that meeting (laughs) I watched, uh, what was the one? I watched Last of the Mohicans recently. Oh, I have not seen that since I was a kid. Yeah, same here. And I barely recognized him. Would you say, what? I know you've thought about Daniel Day-Lewis a little bit more than most people recently. Uh, what would you say is, is this a... No, you keep going. It's fine. Yeah, there's a train in the background. That's a train you're hearing, folks. <laughs> what would you say is Daniel Day-Lewis's best performance oh look i'm not the guy to answer that question mm-hmm. i haven't seen my left foot and i okay. imagine that's a hell of a performance that's just given say. the whole yeah. the whole premise behind that i'm sure that was nothing that was easy for him to do yeah i really liked him in i'm just gonna go ahead and say it i liked him in lincoln oh i i'm 
I, I like Spielberg. There, there it is. Hey, I just said it. He's great. All the cinephiles just went fuck this no, podcast. No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> I like him. It's pop. It's it's pure cinema. Yeah, I, I prefer earlier Spielberg, but sure, he, I'm course. into it. Totally. Of course, but uh, you know, I, I thought the poster was really good, and that's just people in rooms talking. So, but go. anyway, my point is. I thought he was really good in that. I have we just have sort of just second and third hand accounts of how Lincoln talked, yeah. obviously. But I thought he did a fantastic job in that. But there really wasn't a lot of stuff for him to chew on in that. There weren't really huge moments in that. Yeah, he can chew on some stuff in this one. There will be sure. blood though, man. That just and that performance is just it's hard visceral. to argue. What a what a, that's that that might be my favorite mm-hmm. of his that I've that I've seen. I haven't seen all of his films, but that one that one did it for me. Okay, so can I ask you some questions? Yeah, please. All right, so you're coming to the end of the of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Of all of the movies that you saw, are you do you have any grand feelings about the body of work as a whole or anything? I think PTA is going to go down in history as one of the greatest filmmakers, certainly of our modern era. I, I think that's true. I think it's well earned. Yeah. The weakest movies that he's made are still very watchable to me. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I was in no hurry to rewatch Inherent Vice. And yet when I did, it's like, man, great movie. This is yeah. great. The Master shot right up there. It's almost, it's in a close second now, I think. What's number one? Boogie Nights. Yeah. Boogie Nights is always going to be my, my number oh, one PTA movie. It. Maybe my number one movie of all time. I mean, it, sometimes, if someone asks me what my favorite movie is, I'll say that one or there, there's a couple of other ones that kind of cycle in and out. But It's definitely it's in my top five. It's, yeah. it's wonderful. And a lot of that has to do with nostalgia, mm-hmm. just me remembering where I was when I first saw it and just... Uh, having a blast, you know, just drinking and watching it with my buddies and quoting it. It's just eminently quotable and Halloween costumes and The Master, though. I, I always kind of considered it more of a mid-tier PTA movie, but re-watching it again, I was like, no, this is, this is a huge statement that he made with this one. So, yeah, I haven't really changed much of my opinion on mm-hmm. his stuff. I think he's just a fantastic filmmaker, just very, very watchable. And, you know, we try to separate the art from the artist, but he also seems like a really nice guy. I always will, whenever I think about him, I cannot divorce it from the from the knowledge that he is married to Maya Rudolph, who I think is like one of the most incredible human beings on the planet. And whenever I like think about her, I just feel better about everybody and everything. Yeah. And so the fact that they're together really does something for me. She's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the guy's work. Uh, I mean, it, you know, obviously. I mean, I, I, yeah. did a whole, I did a whole season on one filmmaker. It's done. You did it. Close to it. I mean, I still have some writing and some editing to do sure. for the last episode. But, yeah, and I didn't even talk about his music video directing career. Yeah, I thought about that. He's got a very prolific career as a music video director. Especially recently. And there's Janun, I haven't, or, or Janun, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but it's his, the documentary that he filmed in uh, India, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I don't even know about that. Yeah, they showed it at the Belcourt for a little while, and I missed it. But it is on Amazon Prime to rent, so I think I'll probably watch that pretty soon. I think he you have and to. Johnny Greenwood, I think, went to India, and he played with some people, and he just filmed it all. Cool. Yeah. 
let's talk about can we talk about just the design yeah. of this thing? I don't know the first thing about fashion. Clearly to you, none of you guys can see <laughs> this clown costume I'm wearing right now. But even I, watch, watching this movie, I knew that Reynolds Woodcock has a signature look. Mm. He, there's a thing that he does in fashion that's it's his maker's mark. And I can't really put my finger on exactly what it is. It's those fabrics. Mm-hmm. It's also these deep, rich colors. They were fond of the bold, yeah. deep, rich blues on the wall. A lot that of jewel sort of tones. Whoever did that, there was a guy. I remember reading, again, I've been cramming for this. <laughs> so I've got all this information about Phantom Thread in my mind, but I'm not sure if it came from the film itself, yeah. from, from something I read peripherally, from an interview. But there was a person whose job it was, obviously, mm-hmm. to, to pull that look together and to, and to bring it alive. And I think that uh, that guy or gal did a wonderful job. I agree. I think it is both... It does. The clothing accomplishes so many things, and obviously, with a movie like this, or a concept like this, the the clothes have to be a character in and of themselves, and so they really are. They tell this story, uh, or they they tell this piece of it, which is that there is elegance, there is attention to detail, there is absolutely a heaviness, there are there is a seriousness to every single dress. You know, even the dress, even we see her at one point um, wearing a kind of tea length maybe more of a party dress and it's got a floral print on it but even the floral print is very serious and it's the one that she's like well it's not my taste it's on black yeah the background is black they said that they they specifically did that Mm -hmm. Uh, i remember them talking about that particular dress it's like okay this is the spring season collection here but there's nothing that looks particularly springy we didn't even go for a floral print except for once but that was against black yeah it feel it feels like that. If there's very little joy to his clothing, his his, and except for the one moment that I can feel a difference in that is during the fashion show scene, Alma's wearing this red dress, and the and the dress itself really has no joy to it. It's it's lovely, and that's it. But she is so electrically beautiful in it, and she's having a good time wearing it, and she is the joy in those clothes. There is the the clothes themselves are joyless. And they are heavy and they are stodgy and fussy and really say a lot about him. But then there's also the piece of it that in terms of the, st- the signature look, they're all very form fitting. They are about the human body. They are about the- these women's bodies. And he talks about how through his work, he can transform her body. Right. He, he decides what her body looks like. That first and that's date. a big part of it. You yeah. know, he we see the the first woman, the beautiful redhead who comes and tries on a dress. Her undergarments have like padding on her hips so that like her body looks different. And then with Alma, he says, you have no breasts. It's my job to give them to you if I choose to. Through his work, he is transforming the women around him and deciding what their bodies look like. At his leisure. Yes. too. He explicitly said that. Mm-hmm. too. He mm-hmm. looked her dead in the eye. If I so decide. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> and so that I think that that's a big part of his character, too, as represented there. And that it's really a great choice. Whoever whoever had that really difficult job of deciding what this beautiful character of the clothes looked like, they did a great job. Yeah, I think so, too. Even the house, the house itself, oh. the wallpaper, the drapes, like that was part of the extras when they were <laughs> looking at different film stocks. They were also seeing just the way the light played coming through different types of drapes.
there's this one shot that's this wide it's in this room i don't think we see one ceiling in this movie by the way mm. these ceilings are really high there's two open windows it's nighttime it's a darkly lit room and that amber and teal that's everywhere now everything is orange and blue mm-hmm. and the contrast between that there was one of them that had this orangey kind of haze coming through the window and the one over here about 15 feet to the right had this bluish haze coming through it it's absolutely beautiful stuff i love that yeah it's interesting you talk about there you don't see a ceiling i realize we're really almost never outside in this movie as well yeah, towards the end when they have the baby and they're they're walking around, which outside, may or may not be which real, may or may not have even happened. And then there's the scene when they're in the boat, and there's that beautiful shot of the mountains in the background. Are they in a boat? They're in a boat. If okay. I'm not, I, I think that's their honeymoon. Right. Is I think that's about. right. Yeah. Well, the, she goes on a hike up the mountain. So, but yeah, you know exactly. I think that that's one of the very few times. I didn't think of that. And it's interesting, too. It feels like she, because I have this lens that I'm viewing it all with of her being like progress, potential progress. And she climbs the mountain and he stays at the bottom. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you uh, you enjoyed watching it. Yeah. Dicey, it is great to see you again. Thank you so much Thank for doing you. the show three times this season. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, three times this season, or two times this season, and one extra. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the diehard commentary track we did together, and that was a blast too. So thank you so much for thank coming. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll probably see you next season. If, if you'll have me. Oh, I've got opinions yeah. about everything. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. there you have it pta's phantom thread possibly the final word from daniel day lewis as an on-screen presence a solid film to go out on from one of modern cinema's finest filmmakers and that does it for season one of filmography club i hope you've enjoyed listening half as much as i've enjoyed working on it and i hope i've encouraged at least some of you to seek out paul thomas anderson's body of work obviously i'm a big fan of his work having now produced an entire season of a podcast about it We're going to take a little time off between seasons, but we'll be back sooner rather than later with a new filmmaker and filmography to explore. I want to thank Will Fox for early development and encouragement, not to mention editing the first two episodes. I want to thank Harrison Holmes for recording episode two and editing episode three. All of my guests this season, Dicey Wildman, Caleb Dirks, Drew Hammond, Becky Delius, and Megan Burke. I'd also like to thank the insanely talented Ross Warner for the music, courtesy of his Uncle Skeleton Project. I encourage you to look that stuff up. It's fantastic. And of course, thanks to Michael Eads for allowing me to do all of this in the first place and for his guidance and for his patience with me. Most of all, thanks to you for listening and for spreading the word and for the reviews and for the feedback. It means the world to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Filmography Club is produced right here in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee by the always hardworking folks that we own this town. 
This has been Filmography Club Season 1. I've been Jason Cavanis. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Reynolds, do you remember the party? Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. Woodcock. Oh, hello. How do you do, Mr. Woodcock? How are you feeling? I think we met in a puddle of sweat, didn't we? Yes, that's right. And probably owe you an apology of some kind. I seem to remember barking it. There's no need. I've been laid siege by much worse. Oh, really? You look very healthy. How are you feeling? Didn't I tell you to fuck off? Yes, yes, you did. <laughs>